The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 19, Analyzing the Evidence. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. Let's think for a moment about the evidence we have heard in the prior episodes and ask whether our narrative of Watergate makes sense, whether it presents a coherent narrative. Let's start at a place on which I spent little time in this series. The claimed order by John Mitchell on March 30, 1972, to Jeb Magruder to break into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate office building. John Mitchell disputed this to his dying day, and author James Rosen in the book Strongman collates the wealth of available evidence backing Mitchell. All Mitchell ever wanted out of a convention security plan was intelligence as to its potential anti-Nixon demonstrations to be held in Miami that coming summer at the Republican National Convention in ways of securing the convention from disruption by these demonstrators. The agenda item Magruder had placed before Mitchell and aide Fred LaRue on March 30 was at the bottom of a busy 30-item list and by all accounts was not reached until very late in an exhausting day. Mitchell and LaRue have consistently said they tabled any discussions of this and Magruder, as part of his get-out-of-jail card, came up with the theretofore unheard-of idea that the Liddy team should break into the DNC, not previously discussed. To be sure, Liddy had always considered the DNC headquarters to be an option late in the campaign, but not one at the top of the list, and certainly not one before the DNC obtained any campaign information. Moreover, there is no evidence that Liddy had ever communicated to Mitchell that this was a remote option. In any case, Magruder did not relay this as an option to Mitchell under his own testimony. So that if Mitchell did come up with the idea of a break-in to the DNC headquarters, it was his and his alone. Certainly, one may argue, Magruder would not have gone forward unless Mitchell approved. After all, approval was sought by Liddy for his programs on January 27 and February 4, 1972. If he felt he needed approval on those dates, why wouldn't Magruder also feel that he needed approval on March 30 before moving forward? In response, we note that by March 30, Magruder realized he had authority to spend money per the broad overall budget, and the campaign had plenty budgeted for security and similar matters. In short, he did not need to get Mother May I approval for each expenditure. This process was solidified by the addition to the campaign of experienced businessman Maurice Stans, whose management style supported such authority for Magruder. But if that is so, why would Magruder put the item on the agenda? First, by doing so, he covered his bureaucratic flanks. He knew that if this risky break-in was ever to be discovered by Mitchell, then he could say he told his boss about it in advance and thought that Mitchell had not disapproved. He also knew that if the matter were on the agenda, Mitchell would never approve it, especially after a long day, and that his style, as shown by the first two presentations, was merely not to give approval, but not, at the same time, to reject or prohibit. In short, putting this item on the agenda gave Magruder cover in the event this risky matter were discovered. In his book, Will, Liddy gives us the most human explanation for why Magruder would permit this job without pre-approval from Mitchell. 
After weeks of beseeching Liddy to bring a prostitute or two to Washington so that they could sample the prostitute's offering, these were prostitutes that Liddy intended to employ in Miami to extract information from Democratic delegates. Liddy finally relented, gave in to Magruder, and said he would bring a prostitute up to Washington. When Liddy agreed, he noted that the look on Magruder's face told him that the program would certainly get going if Magruder had anything to say about it. As Liddy wisecracked in his book, bringing whores to Washington, D.C. was like bringing cars to Detroit. It was silly in his mind, but he had agreed to do it after Magruder's pestering. I always thought that the case against Mitchell was very weak, and subsequent evidence appears to agree with that assessment. What are the inferences we can draw if, as it appears to be so, Mitchell did not know of or authorize either of the two Watergate burglaries. The first conclusion that we solidly draw is that the burglaries would not be directed at or for the campaign. All agree that Jeb Magruder was a notorious weakling, never a self-starter, never one to initiate anything. So someone else had to give the order, and we know now it was not Mitchell. We know also that Liddy who worked for the campaign, was also against both burglaries, which he considered a waste of budgetary resources with no campaign intelligence value. No other campaign officials were involved other than Magruder and Liddy. So we can fairly conclude that these burglaries were not campaign operations. Even the two men we assess in this series to be undercover spooks confirmed by inference that this was not a campaign operation. Both McCord and Hunt testified that they considered these burglaries to be national security operations. Additionally, the Cubans attempted to withdraw their guilty pleas on the same basis, that they thought the burglary was a legal national security operation. So we can confidently conclude that contrary to literally millions of textbooks published since 1972, the burglary in which the men were arrested was not a bungled campaign operation. So what were the men after? McCord made no serious attempt in the first burglary to penetrate O'Brien's office, which we know from his testimony to be so. And we know the burglars were listening to Spencer Oliver Jr., not any Democratic campaign official. Oliver himself was not even attached to the DNC. So again, from this information, we can conclude that this was not a campaign operation. What else do we know? We know that there was a clear deception by the burglars of Liddy. The only person we posit had no clue as to either a secret CIA agenda or a prostitution target. Thus, the picture supposedly from the first burglary of gloved hands spreading DNC stationery on a shag carpet. As we pointed out, this picture was not taken in the DNC offices and most likely was taken on the shag carpet in the Howard Johnson Hotel. Clearly, someone was meaning to deceive the White House and the CRP, represented by Liddy and likely Magruder, as to the true purpose of that first burglary. We know from Liddy's belatedly published book that McCord had falsely told Liddy of an expensive room bug he claimed to have purchased for the whopping sum of $30,000. He told Liddy that he put the room bug in O'Brien's office, which was supposedly shielded and therefore did not transmit a signal to the monitoring station. So, once more, we know of deceit and a secret agenda as to the true target and purpose of the first burglary. We have posited at length that Hunt and McCord were operating undercover. 
But Hunt is quite clear, consistent with our theory, that he needed some authority from a presidential agent to make this a claimedly lawful operation should it ever be discovered. Who would that be? Well, whoever it was, he authorized the second burglary against Hunt's wishes, as Hunt makes very clear. Under one theory, all CIA purposes had been fulfilled by the seeming presidential authorization to listen to monitored bigwigs conversing with prostitutes, and that purpose was fulfilled with the first burglary. A second burglary was not needed. It is no surprise, then, that Hunt was adamantly opposed to the second break-in, as was Liddy for different reasons. We can infer, then, that the second burglary was not for CIA purposes, but we should logically assume that whatever purpose of the second burglary, it was likely related in some form or fashion to the purpose of the first, that is, about the overhearing of prostitutes and their johns. We have presented a likely author of the second burglary, not for CIA purposes, but related to them. That author would seem to be the person who called Philip Bailey's prosecutor to the White House on June 9, 1972. person, of course, would be John Dean. It was late that day, June 9, 1972, that Magruder told Liddy he might need to go in again to the DNC. And this would be after Dean had met with Rudy and had also read the very disturbing article in the Star News of June 9, 1972. On Monday, June 12, Magruder told Liddy that he wanted Liddy to break in again to the DNC to get what the Dems had in their oppo dirt drawer about Republicans. Liddy makes clear in his book that the second burglary was defensive to find out what the Democrats had on the Republicans. Now, to be sure, Liddy did not know exactly what opposition dirt his superiors were looking for. This scenario, therefore, supports two inferences. First, the CIA did not need or want for its own purposes this burglary, but the White House author did want it. There is only one candidate for the role of a White House official with a reason to authorize a second document-targeted break-in, and that would be John Dean. So far, the evidence is consistent with our narrative theme. We know from the key found on Eugenio Martinez, indeed the target was the Democrats' oppo dirt, but it was dirt found in the desk of Maxie Wells, not that of Larry O'Brien. After all, the key for which he risked his life was to Maxie Wells' desk. This desk would likely have documents related to the Kathy Heidi call girl referral arrangement with the DNC. Kathy is indeed Heidi Riken, as we posit here. Then Dean would have known her, and he would be concerned that he or someone he knew might be referenced in that drawer. Supporting this theme, we note that the June 9 Star News article referred to, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. Kathy is indeed Heidi, who was close enough to Dean to attend his wedding. The purported motive of Dean becomes clear, in our opinion. There is no other way to explain this evidence than as we have explained it so far. But wait, one may say, what about the key? It was found on a CIA agent, Eugenio Martinez. What does this key mean in terms of the CIA's participation? We infer that Dean wanted to know what was in the drawers and knew enough that Hunt could supply that key. Otherwise, there would have been little chance of success. But if this were solely a White House operation or at least a White House motive behind it. How do we account for the abundant evidence of CIA activity 
in this second burglary? How can we claim that the second burglary was not for CIA purposes? Just as Dean, we infer, may have wanted the first burglary for offensive purposes, that is, dirt on the Democrats, the second burglary was defensive for Dean. That is, what dirt did they have on me or on others within the administration? This same reasoning applies to the CIA's motives in the second burglary. The first burglary established a precedent of presidential authority for wiretapping prostitutes and their johns as a national security matter. But just as Dean, we infer, went in a second time for his own now defensive purposes, we can also posit that the CIA likely had defensive purposes as well in this second burglary. A burglary they did not wish to have happen, but which posed dangers to it. What, for instance, would be found out about a CIA operation thus far hidden from the White House? What would be found out through documents about CIA protection of the call girls? What would be found out about a more long-term, long-lasting prostitute referral operation? This may well have been information that the CIA did not want to disclose to White House officials. Moreover, we know from other sources that various White House-connected Johns visited the operation with some frequency. CIA been spying on White House officials. Republican operator and legendary advance man Ron Roadrunner Walker confirms that many of his buddies used this escort operation. In short, there might be a clear need for the CIA to curate what the burglars found before turning documents over to Liddy. Obviously, what the CIA was afraid of is to some degree speculative, but we can soundly infer that the CIA was concerned about some untoward result stemming from the second burglar. Who better to know the sensitive spots of this operation than its security muscle and CIA connection, Lou Russell? It would be Russell, we infer, that would be curating the take of the second burglary before it reached Liddy. This motive would be consistent with leaving tapes on the doors long after the burglars had entered to allow Russell entrance the eighth floor tape was likely to allow Russell to lurk until it was his time to enter and curate well after Wireman McCord had left, but while the Cubans were copying documents. So the tape on the doors would be explained by Russell and his need to be involved in some fashion, and Russell would be explained by the CIA's secret agenda. That agenda, like Dean's, we infer, was now on the defensive each, of course, with a different defensive purpose. It is in this discussion of secret agenda that we might pause and talk about various motives, both disclosed and undisclosed, or disclosed only partially to certain parties. Although we are here attempting to solve the mysteries of Watergate, and do strongly believe we have solved the major mysteries, there are still and yet small details, Phillips, so to speak, which amount to minor mysteries as to which we can only offer speculation, educated or otherwise. One minor mystery we have raised and we can solve arises from McCord's representation to Liddy that he had spent $30,000 on an O'Brien room bug, which he then claimed was shielded by concrete and steel, and therefore was ineffective. McCord had never purchased or installed such a bug. We know both from Michael Stevens and from McCord's own Senate testimony as well as by the crude smoke detector mic he was installing at the time of the arrest. 
This false story of the $30,000 expenditure has great significance. This money instead was spent in part on six bugs on order from Michael Stevens at the time of arrest, three room bugs which could uplink to a CIA satellite, and also perhaps we infer the three phone bugs on order as well could so uplink. Later, if as we suspect, these bugs would have been planted in various spots as part of the hooker surveillance operation, whether in the DNC or otherwise, or at the Columbia Plaza operation or otherwise, all of these bugs could be traced to White House funds authorized by White House agents, including Liddy and perhaps Dean and, by hearsay, Mitchell. Moreover, that these bugs were ordered for a CIA operation could be confirmed by Stevens, who saw the letter from Accord and then checked his bona fides with the agency. So this would have been highly effective as a defense if this operation were discovered in the future. So the $30,000 never documented as going for the room bug, but documented as coming from Liddy, would help the CIA later. Now, however, with the arrests, all were now on defense. The CIA knew that Stevens could cook its goose if he ever came forward. This, of course, was so for Russell as well. But Russell, who knew all about Dean's interest in the call girl ring and his and his wife's friendship with Bailey, now knew he could blow up Dean as well as the CIA and concentrated, we infer, on extorting Dean. This likely explains what happened to have been the two draws by Dean of approximately $5,800 in October and $22,000 later in March of 73, contemporaneous deposits by Russell matching these amounts almost identically. Certainly the evidence fits with an extortion of Dean by Russell. Now, one more minor mystery. Did Dean know of the Wells' desk key? It's hard to know since everybody involved has been lying. Since Martinez, a trusted active CIA agent, possessed it and almost lost his life over it, we can deduce that this risk was taken to protect his agency, not to protect a slick young White House lawyer. My personal conclusion, and other jurors can disagree, was that yes, Dean wanted all the dirt that was had in the desk drawers in the DNC, both on him and other White Housers, but at the same time the CIA was going to give him what it wanted, and what it did not, Russell would get. And this would be after Russell himself, who had extensive knowledge of the operation, made the selection, the curation, after McCord was out of there and after the burglars had amassed all the documents. So in short, these minor mysteries also painted a scenario that Stevens and Russell, originally minor players, now held in their hands the fate of the world's most powerful intelligence agency. This evidence also explains Michael Stevens, who could sink the CIA in multiple particulars. Stevens knew of the CIA satellite linking bugs and of his confirmation with the CIA of McCord's active CIA agent status. Thus, Deep Throat's quivering warning in May of 1973, everyone's life is in danger. This is consistent with both Stevens' frightened fleeing to the FBI and Russell's odd death through, it appears, a covert switching of his heart meds. It may explain as well Dorothy Hunt's death, carrying $10,000 in cash intended for Stevens. 
However, if Howard Hunt was really planning a CIA defense at the time, which we now know he was, we do not believe the $10,000 was meant to shut up Stevens. We infer, to the contrary, that the money was used to pay Stevens to assist him in Hunt's defense. Perhaps, and we are getting into speculation now, the reporter Michelle Clark, who was friendly with Dorothy Hunt and was on the plane, may have intended to write an article about Stevens which would have protected him from CIA skullduggery. But again, this is speculation. Because the money was found at the wreckage, McCord and the CIA likely knew its purpose. We believe that McCord falsely called Dorothy Hunt in his Senate testimony to have been a hush money courier. But we ask, other than this aborted payment, who else did she pay? There is no record I have seen of Dorothy Hunt paying any other Watergate conspirator. Generally, any hush-hush payments were made by the rumpled detective Tony Ulasiewicz, going by the name Mr. Rivers. If Dorothy Hunt was a hush-money courier, that was unknown to the White House that was collecting the hush-money. McCord's calling her a hush-money courier was likely meant to explain why she had $10,000 in cash on her person when visiting Stevens. To be sure, Stephen's name was not publicized at the time, and the public would not have known for whom she was carrying the $10,000. And finally, we note, it has been uncontradicted that Hunt, at least, was operating undercover through Mullen, while only a fool would believe that McCord was not operating undercover. This status would explain yet another mystery, which is why Hunt, in four months, could not find for Liddy a double-blind wireman, and needed to have McCord on the team. Of course, for CIA purposes, having McCord on the team solidified the proof the CIA would later offer should the undercover activities be discovered. We have presented, we think, a coherent narrative explaining the Watergate burglary that was the subject of the arrests and as well the first burglary occurring two weeks earlier. Why wasn't any of this discovered and publicized at the time. We have shown to you that the only real truth-teller involved was Liddy, and he, wanting to be a stand-up guy, kept his mouth shut until 1980. Additionally, Judge Bazelon's appellate ruling further shut down the public's view of the event, aided, of course, by Hunt's guilty plea and abandonment of the CIA defense. Thus, the evidence presented at trial was restricted in scope. Hunt's guilty plea, in turn, was forced both by Dorothy's death and Dean's withholding of the Hermes notebooks. And once the dangers of a public trial passed, it was clear sailing for deceiving a Senate that wished to be deceived that this was all about Nixon. But having told you all this, wouldn't the Washington Post have knowledge of at least most of what we are telling you here today, 48 years after Watergate? Unfortunately for the public's right to know, the Post went out of its way to hide the truth and protect the DNC while skewering hated enemy Richard Nixon. So as we close the mysteries of Watergate, you should now understand these mysteries and also why the public, until now, had not understood them. These mysteries, which we are unfolding 48 years after the events in question, also points out the need for a media which energetically uncovers and provides the truth to the public. Where was our vaunted Pulitzer Prize-winning media during Watergate when it should have been uncovering and solving these mysteries. 
Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.